Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. And Teddy is not here with us today because I abandoned him. Yep, you left um, him. Yeah, uh, he is uh, totally fine. Teddy is fine. Um, probably better without me. Uh, I spend a half the ah, year, part of the year on the East Coast, and Teddy stays with good friend, stepfather, stepmother uh, that he definitely loves more than he loves me for good reason. <laughs> um, yeah, so not only did you leave Teddy, you left me. Well, yes, yes. We are yeah, on different yes. coasts. You had to put your gear back together for the first time in six months. Um, Here's hoping it works. <laughs> who knows? Uh, today we're <laughs> asking the question, uh, when will San Francisco be underwater, Brian? Oh, it is, yeah. apparently. <laughs> yeah, good news. <laughs> They're fucked. Anyways, here to help us answer that uh, and tell us exactly what to do all the time, because uh, she should be in charge, is the intrepid Molly Peterson, a renowned reporter focusing on the environment and climate change. She's worked at Southern California Public Radio, uh, IC Change, which is funded by NASA, uh, she traveled to and reported from Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo as a fellow for the International Women's Media Foundation and is now at Pactio, a uh, super cool new organization supporting independent journalists. And we will dig into that more. Yeah, she's done a lot. Uh, yeah, boy, she's and, impressive. And does a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really, really raised us up a little bit. Our quality <laughs> levels. Um, this, well, as, as all of our guests have. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. She's just a, a special one. And the length that she went to to get a good recording. I mean, wow. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah. She built a fort. Uh, for better she, she recorded from a fort that she mm-hmm. built. <laughs> oh, just a hero. Um, speaking of putting our gear back together, I, I gave you shit about putting yours back together. I'm like deathly ill over here. Uh, I feel like I faked it pretty well. Uh, you sounded great. But in putting together my gear... I open the box from California. There's uh, there's a power cord. Doesn't seem to go to anything, but I'm also not sure what it goes to. I want to see. I want to see it. I want to know what it is. You were there when I, I packed this stuff up. I just took the things that were necessary, <laughs> and I genuinely don't understand what this goes to. Um, well, make sure you bring it back when you come home, then, because you're going to need it for something at the office. I guess I don't know. Um, you have a thing with power cords. Remember when you gave me those speakers and left out the power cord? You've either got a power cord or you don't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And do your speakers have the power cord now? Because what is this? No, yes. Now they do. Everything's fine. Oh, okay. All right. And thank you for the speakers. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Glad those worked out. Hi, we don't have our, I don't have a HomePod here, so we don't have anybody talking to us. It's been weird. We haven't done this in a while. It came out fine, but man, it's been a, it's been a different sort of day. And yeah. we only got a couple more months of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said you were talking to your mom before this. How's she? I was. Yeah, she gave me a she gave me a call. I think my I think when my phone rings, my favorite person for it to be is is my mom. I would hope I would hope so. Like, who else would be in the running? The only other one that I really like is when my agent calls because if she calls me, that usually means I've booked something. Who calls more? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's up and down right now. Is it mom for sure? Is it a lot? Of, mostly mom right now. It's been a little dry in the commercial department. <laughs> Does the agent call with bad news or is that just a no call for bad? That's news? just a no call. Yeah. So you're just left to wonder what happened. Right. right exactly. Which is just such a good feeling. Yeah, but no, mom. Mom called. I was so happy to see uh, her on the uh, on the caller ID, and uh, she's doing great. She's a little under the weather, actually, like you. Um, so that part sucks. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, living it up, getting back into yoga in a big way, which nice. I love. Uh, it's so yeah. good. My mom teaches uh, yoga to children. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy. To specifically to children. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, wow. I try to get them to calm their little bodies and minds down. It's very impressive. I mean, That's considering so cool. I was the kid who, oh God, I'm going to, what was on my report Say card it. growing up for like, not getting like 12 years straight in the same school system that, you know, they had like, there's a little legend where they could print like pre-selected comments to really you okay. know, get down to how specific your child is. It was just pre-selected, <laughs> like six pre-selected comments. And sure. mine was always, every time, socializes at the inappropriate time. <laughs> Which is amazing for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I've become more of an introvert these days. Um, yeah. it's, I think it's also just being tired all the, every <laughs> right. day of my life. 
Um, but it's you got to have a lot of energy to be an extrovert. But getting that a couple times is one thing. But you know, eventually, like an anomaly becomes a, st- a statistic. Right. Interesting. Wow. I wonder if we would have been buddies in in like uh, middle school. I think so. You think so? What were you into? I think so. Uh, well, I would. Uh, well, maybe not buddies, but I would uh-huh. make you laugh in class. I would make you laugh in class, and then I would never see you otherwise because you like were always swimming and being an athlete, and I was just like. Just being a fucking, just fucking around all the time. But what, what did you do? Anything? Did you do anything? I rode my bike, rode my bike around, started a lot of trouble. Cool. And I, and cool. I, and I worked, <laughs> I worked a lot too. I guess that's more high school than, than junior high, but. You're painting a very specific picture of your life. Listen, everything was good. I was responsible when I needed to be. And then I was a clown all the other times. Do you think you would have gotten socialized at the inappropriate time? Oh, absolutely. My comment was always like, we know Brian's like smart and normal. Like, why does he have to be such an asshole? Was that the pre-printed comment that they could pick from? <laughs> I think it was a stamp. They already had it ready. And so they just stamped that every time. Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, you know, some things don't change. Um, no, I, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, well, I hope I do hope your mom feels better. Do you think she's feeling under the weather because you haven't given her a grandchild yet? No, I don't. Okay. I think we, my brother and I talked about this with her before. We were like, oh, mom, we're so sorry. Like, we can't believe we haven't given you a grandchild yet. And my mom was like, no, don't like, if it's going to happen, fine. But don't like have a grandchild because you think, or don't have a child because you think I want a grandchild. Like, that's not the reason to have a kid. And we're like, okay, that makes sense. Which is fair. But at the same time, that's like kind of when you ask uh, your significant other, uh, everything okay? And they go, it's fine. (laughs) Everything's fine. Yeah, it's never fine. That is the answer. Uh, um, get on that, get on that train, Brian. It's the best. Yep. Thank you. I'm down. What do you mean? Of course, I'm down. It's the there's, best. There's other, there's other, you know, parties uh, that have to be uh, down. Uh, all right. Um, Working on it. I'll keep you posted. Let's go. Uh, let's go find Molly Peterson in her fort. We should talk to Molly. <laughs> all right. Our guest today is Molly Peterson, and together we're going to answer the question, hopefully, uh, when will San Francisco be underwater? Uh, Molly, welcome. Oof. Thank you. <laughs> Very happy to have you here. If you don't mind, Molly, tell us uh, real quick uh, just who you are and what you do. I am a local, mostly public radio reporter, and I've been covering climate change as long as I've been a reporter, so like more than a dozen years. And um, right now I'm working for KQED, uh, the local station in the Bay Area, as well as for this startup that supports local independent journalism called Pactio. Ooh, tell us a little more about that. Pactio is kind of like, the idea is that local news is incredibly valuable, but we're all facing towards national news at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Even local news organizations have a hard time really staying focused on what's a big deal. So the idea is to sort of support local independent journalism in a kind of Patreon Kickstarter way. Nice. Super cool. And it does yeah. matter. And it's not, you know, it's, it, it's inevitable that they have to turn towards national things because, because we are getting pounded every day by the, by these things that have ramifications for everyone. Yeah. I just really believe deeply in local journalism. And one of the reasons why is because I cover climate change and, sure. There became this point of view. I mean, I am amazed and impressed by people who do research all over the world. But there's this way that people I've talked to um, in California and Louisiana and Oklahoma, other states are looking at ice flows and polar bears and thinking, that's not me. That's not my problem. Right. So you, there's climate change that's happening in your backyard right now that you should notice. It can take so many different shapes and forms and it's so regional uh, and even it can even be hyper local. Uh, and, you know, a lot of what we've talked about is is trying to get folks again. You know, we always try to urge action, specific action of some sort. And you can make the most impact slash raise the most hell on a hyper local level. And uh, there will be some frustrations along the way, but it's you're certainly going to feel and literally see your impact you're much more likely to feel and see that impact than you are than, than, than pestering your representatives who don't really listen to you anymore. Your federal representatives, you know, going to your city council meeting and asking about the, the local uh, water quality and air quality and things like that. And 
who are the biggest polluters and and what are we doing about those if anything is something that you can measure and you can see and your kids can breathe that air yeah and even just noticing things so before i worked for these guys I worked for something called IC Change, which is a NASA-funded, well, it was NASA-funded, citizen climate observation project. I was, that was reading global, about that. And it was, yeah, it's really cool. Um, so it basically takes qualitative observations from local people and pivots them to quantitative observations of carbon in the atmosphere from NASA's Orbiting Carbon Observatory. And That's what so that cool. meant was, yeah, so we were in contact with scientists to truth squad what people saw and give people context for what they saw. And we got observations from Kenya and Rwanda. Wow. I met one of our observers in Kenya last year. It was amazing. We, uh, let's get, let's uh, get some, some actions that we can uh, uh, make our listeners realize that they can take. And uh, we'll ask all the questions to, to get there. Yeah. Uh, before that, uh, Molly, uh, you're a listener and friend of the pod uh, when you have time not saving the world. <laughs> uh, so you might already know this, but instead of asking what's your life story, we like to ask, Molly Peterson, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Because I'm a journalist and I actually think yes. high quality journalists are incredibly crucial to paying attention to climate change and to connecting something that's science based to your relationship to your community, be it in policy or in your economy and how your spending choices, all of it. So more information is good. Tom Stoppard said, what What was the Tom Stoppard quote? Information is light. Light about anything is good. I love that. I love nice. that. Do you feel like your job has, or your perspective on your job has changed in the last two years? My perspective on my job has been changing nonstop for the last four or five years. And, mm -hmm. but the, uh, some of it has changed since um, Trump got elected and some of it in the ways exactly that you think, but it's always, always hard um, and has been something I've been thinking about for the last five, six, seven years to figure out how to connect people, not just, look, I worked for a local public radio station. It's a fantastic station. We do mm -hmm. great work, but we also cover these meetings that happen in Sacramento about policies that it's like, well, who cares? Yeah. You know, there's a policy about a low carbon fuel standard. If you are one of our friends in the kitchen trying to figure out whether to recycle something, that's not what you're thinking about. Sure. And so the idea of making a closer connection to between things is really a big deal. So at the same time, yeah, there's in the last couple of years, the other thing besides Trump getting elected and the policies that are coming out of Washington is that there's this sense that the truth is malleable. That's mm -hmm. huge and growing and it's scary. Yeah, it, it is scary. It's, it really is a whole new world on that front. Um, and the efforts that are being made to both make it seem and to, to make it malleable to, to manipulate folks. It's, it's pretty out of control. All right, let's, uh, let's get into it here. So let's establish uh, some context for today's question. Uh, which means it's time for Context 101 with Professor Brian. It's kind of like every student's favorite entry-level class that you <laughs> schedule at 3 p.m. on a Friday and never really go to. It's often oversimplified, beers off course, uh, never intentionally wrong, but Brian's doing his best. It's like a, it's, it's a really great book report. Um, but we've got Molly here to correct us. So, Brian, talk to us about uh, sea level rise. Thank you in advance for all corrections, Molly. All right, so this might be uh, news to uh, you guys, but the sea levels are rising. Uh, and <laughs> more, more interestingly, sea levels have kind of uh, ebbed and flowed over the millennia. Millennia. Big word. Yeah, thank you. And a little bit confusing, actually. It sounds like it would be a million, but it's a thousand. What? Why would you do that? Yes. Okay. Anyway, um, all right, so you've got uh, nice temperate poles and then ice ages and then melting and then ice ages. And mm -hmm. the, the poles actually used to be these really lovely temperate places. And because mm. they were, the oceans were way higher and basically like everything you know was underwater. Like, that's why you, there were yes. shark teeth in Arizona. I, I literally was talking with my children about that this week because obviously they're into Blue Planet and Planet Earth and all this stuff. I think the, the North American one is called like the Western Interior Seaway. It's crazy. The, these and just sharks everywhere. Anyways, <laughs> everywhere. we'll put in the show notes. It's um, yeah. Um, and it's like throughout all this, the oceans absorb like 90% uh, of the atmospheric heat associated with emissions. 
but mm-hmm. there's a few things that are different this time. Like what's different this time? Well, okay. we're here. <laughs> right. What well, what does it mean by we're here? Well, like more humans are here, and that means that more humans will die when the islands and the coasts are underwater. But also all mm-hmm. of us humans like are causing the melting to happen way, way, way faster. By the way, didn't uh, Doctor the Marvelous Dr. Kate Marvel tell us uh, that her data says, this was a real clincher, if we hadn't been influencing warming, the Earth would actually be in a cooling period? Yeah. Not like an ice age, but like, you know, most things are, are on, not a most <laughs> things are on fire age. Yeah, she did. And, and uh, everybody's like, the Earth is always changing temperature. And that's true. But the point sure. is, we're not supposed to be right now. And here's the kicker. The rate of rise has it like has been rising. <laughs> nice. And people and like when I say people, I mean like ignorant assholes love to say that like that's leveled off or it's dipping even. But um, that's what mm-hmm. we call cherry picking data. Uh, like, of course, there's going to be fluctuations. You know, if there's more snow and the water piles up on land instead of the oceans, for example. But the point is when water warms, it expands. And the mm-hmm. water is warming like so much that not only are the ice caps melting and massive chunks of ice are falling off of Antarctica, but the underwater currents that power our entire climate are out of whack. Right. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> how much How much faster is faster? What are we talking about here? Um, Since we're getting so technical with things. Super technical. Uh, yeah, we've always uh, and still talk about sea level rise uh, like an in inches per year. And at some mm. point, um, and definitely sooner than we thought, we're talking feet, and oh, good. some folks think we're underestimating that. We, yeah, we're pretty good at that. <laughs> but um, like, okay, so it's risen about eight inches since 1880, as far as we can the tell. Ocean, the ocean, right? the fucking ocean, and that's okay. you know that's 140 years almost, right? And then there's right. current projections are saying that by 2100, so 80 years, we're we're talking anywhere from one foot in. That's uh, about half the time. Yeah, right. Right. And almost half the time from one foot to eight feet. Okay. Um, (laughs) So, all right. I'll ask the question. And again, we we don't try to like dumb things down, but we do try to uh, operate from the lowest common denominator uh, so people really get what we're talking about. It's more important to be properly and fully informed than to pretend you are. Why does the ocean going up eight feet matter? Great question. Um, I mean, if you're out there in a boat, you don't notice it, right? <laughs> Theoretically. But, 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 you know, what if your house or uh, the local naval base or an airport or a subway system or a power plant, mm-hmm. what if they're built at sea level or like damn right. near close to it? Right. Uh, then an extra foot of water, even one foot feels over an airport feels bad. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and you like, we built cities on water, mostly rivers and oceans for, for trade and like, you know, guess what? Eight of eight of the ten largest cities are on the coast or or very near the coast. There are American cities who are like seriously, like unbelievably in some shit over the next fifty years. Yeah, New York, Miami, actually most of Florida, Norfolk, Boston, Charleston, Atlantic City, New Orleans is mega fucked. The New York Times did a partnership with the Times Picayune, covering uh, New Orleans' increasing water issues. Uh, it was pretty, pretty tremendous. We'll put that back in the show notes. And of course, San Francisco. Right. Okay. Uh, Brian, that was amazing. Thank you uh, for that. Context. <laughs> that was something. So let's focus on our question. Uh, it sounds a little uh, ridiculous. Uh, when will San Francisco be underwater? But Molly, you wrote an article uh, recently titled, Like It or Not, The Water is Coming. Will the Bay Area defend against rising seas or embrace them? And again, we put that in a newsletter when you published it. We'll put in the show notes here too. Can you give us the sort of one minute breakdown so we can then more fully dig in? Yeah, well, I, first of all, I don't need to correct Brian. So um, this is all very exciting because we're well, all on the same page. <laughs> we're all on the same page about this, except the only thing I'd also say is that in San Francisco, you know, you were asking me, when is San Francisco going to be underwater? And the answer is they're already underwater yeah. sometimes Ugh, right I'm... now. You know, the best guidance for the San Francisco Bay Area about sea level rise is to expect between two and 10 feet of sea level rise alone by the end of the century. That doesn't count storm surges. That doesn't count high tides, which are two other factors. That's from the State Ocean Protection Council's science advisory team, which is based on this 
2012 National Research Council report that's the you got that information from, um, I think, that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then you mentioned um, eight inches since 1880. Well, it, San Francisco has the longest continually serving tide gauge, basically. Um, you know, under the Golden Gate Bridge, right by Christie Field, um, by the marina, is um, it's now operated by NOAA. When it started, there was no NOAA. So, wow. um, and at that gauge, it's gone up eight inches in the last century. They that The story of that tide gauge Jeez. is kind of a fascinating and amazing thing. But the point is, is that, you know, we have measurable sea level rise in San Francisco already and in the Bay Area. They're planning for by mid-century. Well, this is actually an interesting sticking point because they're not they don't have to plan to a limit there. So what do you, what do you mean no, by that? Well, so what I mean is um, in the Bay Area, there's no while you are um, required, if you make changes, there's something called the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, which is a state commission. It's kind of an unusual creation. And I can tell you the story about that if you want. But what they do have authority over is 100 feet around the edge of the bay. Uh And if you pull a construction permit or make any changes around the edge of San Francisco Bay, you have to consider sea level rise. But it doesn't say how you have to consider sea level rise. There's a growing body of like complex work about what that means, but there isn't uh-huh. a, you definitely have to plan for two feet, or you definitely uh, have to plan for four or six or eight uh, feet. And that's kind of a problem that you, you can look at in a lot of these communities, um, because I, I don't believe yet that there is a rule in South Florida, for example, that you have to plan for uh, a specific amount of sea level rise. You have to consider it, but it's hard to get, when the rubber meets the road, about spending money, making regulations. It's hard for people to rely on emerging science. They aren't entirely mm-hmm. comfortable mm-hmm. with it. And so we're slow to adapt to that sort of emerging science and this new information. And we've had huge developments in sea level rise science in the last five years. But getting people to agree on one number that can be used as a barometer for these sort of development projects would seem to be an, uh, a pretty contentious battle. Oh, for sure. Which and yet, is probably why. Yeah. Oh, totally. And yet there's, I mean, the thing that I found when I was talking to people in the Bay, and there's a researcher there, um, Mark Stacy at UC Berkeley, who's been modeling what would happen if sea level rise happened in the Bay. There's an, it's a really complex dynamic thing. So mm-hmm. what happens in one community affects another. Decisions that right. you make in one community to put up a wall are going to affect another community where there's no wall yet. And so um, one community's decision affects another's because it makes sense for them to sort of plan together. Yeah, right. that was such an interesting uh, part of that article that I didn't really, uh, you know, think to think about ahead, uh, before that, is that these walls that are, you know, redirecting the, the tides or reversing them, it's, yeah, well, that water's going to go somewhere and it might be your neighbor. Yeah, I didn't think of that either. And I grew up in the Bay Area. And so Foster City was this magical, fascinating land to me that my parents weren't super into, but we would drive by. And, you know, the the fact that they had a lagoon, I thought meant pirates were involved. You <laughs> sure. know, like I, 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 I thought it was this. Answer. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and the lagoon, by the way, is dyed with, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's really interesting. They dye it a darker kind of blue green, which helps mm-hmm. cut down on... Um, photosynthesis and keeps them from getting too many weeds that would affect their electric Duffy boats. So, um, so which is, but it gets this kind of Disney-esque color in that um, lagoon they've got there. But it's this planned community that's sticking out onto the bay, whose creation was partially responsible for the idea that there even is a local commission that tries to look at the edge of the bay. But um, Foster City makes a decision and that's going to affect Belmont and Redwood City and these other cities in Silicon Valley. Dang. Um, right. All right. So I guess, yeah, let's let's uh, ask this pretty practical question is like, what is what is San Francisco and Oakland um, already done to to prepare for the sea level rise that is already happening? There are planning processes going on yeah. in San Francisco on the Embarcadero and the story, the Embarcadero itself, the construction of it is this fascinating thing because it took them a really long time to build it. And Mm -hmm. at the time they were building it, it was in this squishy, sticky mud, you know, this kind of old, old bay mud. And so they didn't 
you know, have the technology in the mid-19th century to dry anything out. So they just piled rocks in a big triangle. They dug a little hole and they piled some rocks up to try to build. And that's a solid engineering principle, but it's also, we now know so much more about, you know, geotechnical information that there's ways we would not do that. So there's seismic problems for the seawall that has allowed San Francisco to have more land um, Mm -hmm. in the kind of adjacent to the downtown area. And there are sea level rise problems that are associated with that. And there's things that you wouldn't think about with a with a port like that. For example, there's infrastructure when you have those kind of finger ports, those finger piers rather, that stick out off the end of the Embarcadero in front of the seawall. Those yeah. are the the piers where people put the America's Cup boats and the ferries mm-hmm. and the and because sea level's rising, there's less time to maintain the equipment on the underside of those piers because there's higher tides. So because the sea level's higher, that means there's slightly less time and there's less and less time as time goes on for them to maintain this equipment. And so we're talking about in the Bay Area, I think the stat is that um, this is the uh, Pacific Institute, which is a local Oakland-based institute. They've estimated that about 4.6 feet of sea level rise would cost the Bay Area $62 billion in property damage. And endanger a quarter of a million people plus. And actually, I think that number is low because San Francisco believes that there's even more behind it when you get into the financial industry, um, the tech industry that's in downtown San Francisco. That number is probably even a low estimate. Wow. Wow. All right. So... So what, what, uh, you know, again, the inability to agree on a number which, you know humanity wise would seem to be accepting defeat which you know we can dig into the to the philosophy uh, uh, of why these arguments are still happening um but they have accepted that that obviously uh sea level rise is coming because they're already dealing with it and it's going to be exponentially worse so what what is sort of the planning and i'm thinking about sort of new york and and miami here too which are still holding on to the idea that they're going to be able to hold these tides off and, and are undertaking similar sort of planning efforts and a little less action. What, what have they done to prepare for this sort of exponential growth that's coming? So there's kind of two paths that they, two very broad paths that they can take. And, and one is to continue to manage a relationship with water the way we have in the Bay Area, in San Francisco over the last century. And the other is to reconsider what our relationship can be with the shoreline. And um, in San Francisco, uh, in the Bay Area, and as well as in New York, um, the Rockefeller Foundation has held design competitions to try to promote uh, very ambitious, very blue sky thinking about what to do, um, what you could possibly do to deal with sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um And that's something that's been going on in the San Francisco Bay Area, specifically not just with the Rockefeller Foundation. I think nine years ago, the um, Bay Conservation Development uh, Commission was part of, there's a discussion. There was this idea for this kind of amazing um, carbon fiber mesh. If you can imagine like a big, huge mesh scoop hooked onto either side of the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. And the idea be- behind building something like that, which is completely science fiction, like completely <laughs> this amazing huge thought, right. is to slow down the wave energy and to sort of control wow. the flow of water in- throughout the entire bay. Wow. Yeah. And it never got anywhere. But it's an amazing idea. Well, at least people are thinking. Yeah. Right. I, think, I, I love that. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you think about what... Um... Oh my God, I'm I'm brain dead today. The Italian city with all the uh, with all the canals. Thank you, Venice. <laughs> with you all know, the James it, Bond movies. The uh, Italian city with all the James Bond yeah, movies. That one. Oh boy, brain dead today. You know what they've done with the incredible uh, like doors underwater that they've built? Have you seen this? It's, no. Uh, it's incredible because I mean, Jesus. If anybody's facing sea level, sea level rise, it's those guys. It's pretty wild the things that they've done, and and the Dutch are similar, developing things like this. Because as the Dutch say, you know, we've been doing this for forever. But uh, the question becomes like, is, is that enough? You know, side question. It's, uh, it's, it's election time almost. 
Has the San Francisco uh, Oakland mayoral race uh, discussed this at all? Or is it like the 2016 national election where nobody talked about climate change the entire time? <sighs> well, I, so they are going to have in November, it it appears that that's the case. The, the port's um, taking has been taking the steps towards a big, huge vote where people would have to be willing to tax themselves to fix the Embarcadero seawall. And, they, and, the, and they're selling people on the idea of fixing it for seismic and sea level rise reasons. And I don't believe anyone is opposed to fixing this seawall in San Francisco. It's just not something that at this point anyone could reasonably consider and right. be elected mayor, even with that goofy ranked choice voting, which right. is, you know, still emerging a candidate at this at, at the time of this taping. Mm-hmm. Uh, do would they have any idea Oof. what the damage would be like to, to do that, both on uh, the individual tax they're voting for and the total bill to do that? And I guess maybe the time to do that. Like how much it would cost. Yeah. Um, so they're talking about fixing it in stages. Yeah. I mean, overall, they believe that it would cost three to five billion dollars just to fix the San Francisco seawall in and the San Francisco seawall. Um, the Embarcadero seawall is only part of kind of San Francisco's overall shoreline. And the initial amount of money that they're talking about asking people to vote on in the fall is somewhere between 400 and 500 million dollars total and they haven't decided or released a plan for how they would ask people to contribute to it for what it's worth they're also trying to get money from the state of California um and of course San Francisco and Oakland are you know suing oil companies yeah um, they are to hold them responsible for sea level rise and that case is still alive and has not yet been dismissed Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of cases with different legal theories that are moving. Uh, so it, it may be the case, even if that case gets dismissed, that a case under a different legal theory in a different court may help hold oil companies responsible for that. Sure. God, that would be sure. so, yeah, we'll see where that goes. So, all right. So there's a lot of clearly a lot in, uh, uh, planning and, uh, being voted on. I know. Sorry guys. I'm always making that stuff more complicated. No, sorry. no, 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 no. It's, it's good. We like to get nerdy here. Um, we just <laughs> okay, also good. like to back it up sometimes. So everybody yeah, yeah. totally gets it. I mean, we've, we've, yeah, uh, we've gotten there. Don't worry, Brian, you'll hear a, a, a deep sigh from Brian if he's totally lost. Um, <laughs> I forgot what Venice was, so don't worry. <laughs> That's um, Professor Brian. Um, no, but yeah, so uh, there, there is a lot in planning, like I was saying, and being voted on. Um, but but what is going to happen in the next 20 or 50 years, no, no matter what actions they take? Right. What What's coming down the pipe, uh, sea level rise wise, uh, kill me, uh, <laughs> no matter what they do? Well... I mean, here are things we definitely know are happening that are com- combining to create more risky flooding circumstances around the bay. The predictions are for around two feet of sea level rise by mid-century. So that's within 32 years. Um, In addition, we know that um, sea level rise, of course, is 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 rising. Uh, God, we all nice. do that. Yeah, don't we? you pulled a Quinn. Um, That's globally. what we're going to call it from now on. Pulling a Quinn. I know sea level rise is rising. Um, <laughs> we know that sea level. We know that sea levels are rising. We know that there are more in California. We've got more intense storms and more extreme uh, precipitation, and yeah. so th- managing water on the landscape becomes a big deal. Um, in one of the places I went. You know, we put creeks into, um, and we do this all around the country. We put creeks into concrete channels, and we try to speed the water away from us. Huh. And when you do that, um, and that's why, like in Los Angeles, you'll have swift, you have a lot of swift water rescues in the winter time of homeless people in the Los mm-hmm. Angeles River, mm-hmm. because we that water can be thirty five miles an hour if it's less than a foot deep. Right. It's crazy. It's so, wild. So our relationship with water and our relationship with our shorelines has been, our relationship with water has been to push it away from where we live and to keep it away from places we want to build housing and buildings. And our relationship with the shoreline in San Francisco used to be that there were dumps all around the edge of the bay. I mean, people, there are pictures of people just backing up and dumping trash right at the edge of the bay. So, and there's, I mean, we obviously spread out, um, you know, the places where the water comes from, like San Bruno Mountain or mountains around San Francisco um, and where the water falls into the bay. And we, you know, kind of widened these areas. And when we did that, we rethought our whole hydrology and that's going to affect 
um, the risk to everybody around the bay in terms of the cost of flooding and the and the cost to potentially people and buildings. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be, and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. So for our San Francisco listeners and Oakland listeners and greater Bay Area and everybody else who's never been to San Francisco um, but has only seen the Golden Gate Bridge on the map, can you tell us two feet in the next 35 years happening no matter what? What's within that danger zone. Let me think of um, ways that we can say I, that. Right. Yeah. I, uh, from what I understand, uh, the two airports are in pretty deep shit. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to try to count stuff up. So we're talking about, I mean, sir, uh, the, the two airports, we already have nuisance flooding, they call it, um, which is, you know, kind of That's a tide dull. related. Yeah, what a yeah, word exactly. to use. Nuisance flooding in uh, BART stations in downtown San Francisco um, Mm -hmm. and in Oakland. Um, So BART might be affected. And BART, of course, already has to slow down trains for seismic events. So BART Mm -hmm. now is planning for multiple disaster threats um, that are dynamic and changing and getting worse. And then completely unsexy, like I was completely uninterested in this when I got um, when I started doing the reporting, but wastewater treatment plants. And the reason why wastewater treatment plants are at sea level is because it's cheaper to use gravity to send waste from like the hills. So if you live in the Berkeley Hills or in Hillsboro or, you know, any place up a hill and you're like, oh, sea level rise isn't going to affect me because I'm sitting up on this hill. Right. It's totally possible that your wastewater treatment plant gets swamped. It could get swamped by high tides. Now, there's a lot of planning in the wastewater treatment industry and they all wanted to make sure I knew that on Twitter when I did the story. <laughs> but but it is also true that a UC Berkeley scientist figured out that five times as many people are going to be affected by flooding of infra- critical infrastructure around the edge of the bay wow. than by direct flooding on their own. Oh, traffic jams too, of course. There's another reason you could get into a traffic jam because of uh, there's already flooding in, on Highway 37 in Napa. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a key part of the North Bay commute. And the thing about San Francisco traffic that I relearned is there's no way to get around a mess. Like, yeah, right. I find that in Los Angeles, if I need to go someplace, there's usually two or three different choices I can make. I make a bad one sometimes. Sure. But <laughs> in in the Bay Area, you've got, you've usually got one route. You know, you have to go this one way. Well, and I think the other thing people swamped. don't totally realize is, 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 I mean, again, we're talking about the whole Bay Area, but how, how small geographically is San Francisco really is? There's not a ton of options. You yeah, know, it's right. not that big, um, but there's, you know, they, they've banked a lot on it and, and Oakland is, is, is similar. So, so areas like that, wastewater treatment plants in the airports, those are essential pieces of infrastructure. What, it, what planning is being done? What actions beyond planning are being done? Because 35 years is not a long time. Nope, it's not. So there are things you can do. Um, and I will say that this is also a problem for people who aren't in the Bay or maybe only visit the Bay Area or are Dodgers fans. Um, <laughs> you know, there's an entire coastline of California that's got um, critical plants. And we talked about wastewater treatment plants, but there could also be um, peaker plants, um, natural mm-hmm. gas plants or yeah. other um, power plants. And you have those along the California yeah. coastline as well. Miami's nuclear power plant is like on the ocean. Yep. And this thing about the wastewater treatment plants is actually true in any city. Like you think about like, here's what engineers try to do when they build infrastructure. They want to build infrastructure that can last, but they also want to build infrastructure that is cost effective. And so this isn't just like some dumb idea that somebody had in the Bay Area that caught on. 
this is the kind of logic that people have in a lot of U.S. coastal cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's worth familiarizing yourself about that if you live someplace else. Um, but the kind of planning that goes on is you can take interim steps like moving critical machine equipment to higher levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to live in Louisiana after Katrina for a few years, and it was a big deal that uh, the hospitals flooded. People knew that there was going to be eight to 10 f- uh, feet of flooding in places. But right. what they ended up doing was moving critical generators and um, pumps, you know, that much higher to a second floor if possible, um, if it was a healthcare right. facility. And healthcare facilities are at risk in a lot of cities, not just the Bay Area, not just New Orleans, all right. around the U.S., yeah. Yeah, I mean, New York saw a lot of that with Sandy. Um, And again, to kind of tie things together, I mean, New York's, you know, and and the New Jersey, the shore, like all the rebuilding that's happened, it's great, but it's kind of like Puerto Rico and that you go, yes, but the hurricane season just started again. Is it like, this is all seasonal, cyclical. So, you know, their their forward-looking planning efforts post-Sandy have been, you know, fairly criticized. What's What's interesting is, you know, San Francisco gets a a ton of rain, right? But they don't really face hurricane-type threats like that. So there's not as much of a, it's not, there's not as much of a huge opportunity, if we can call it that, for a come-to-Jesus moment, where you go like, oh, shit, we have to figure this out. But like you said, in San Francisco, and and this is where I'm really curious, like, you know, you said in in New Orleans, they knew there'd be 8 to 10 feet of rise and uh, of, of flooding, and you're moving generators to second floors. The the folks in the Bay are saying it's going to be two to 10 feet on a normal day. So, yeah, you know, moving generators to the second floor is not a long-term solution. What do you do with an entire airport or waste treatment plant or, or things like that, knowing that that's, you know, again, t- it's not going to be 10 feet in 35 years, but we keep finding that we're underestimating this every time we look at it and, and go back and measure. I, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated and uh, horrified to kind of see like what, what these places are going to do. I mean, I'm, you know, my, my, my best friend's a submariner. I'm an hour here from, from the Norfolk Naval, Naval Base, and they're fucked. Yeah, and I would say the government, um, and in particularly the, the Defense Department, has a history of thinking about how climate change is going to affect their operations. But here's another essential truth about planning for sea level rise that makes it really complicated and challenging. And the Bay Area is kind of this microcosm of the problem nationally. Um, there are nine counties around the Bay Area. There are 101 cities and something mm-hmm. like 43 or 44 that touch water, that touch Bay water. Jeez. And Damn. what that means is that they would have to have um, clearer authority to decide what to do. They would have, you know, there's not, we have not created dedicated funding streams in a lot of the cases. It's it's a lot easier to go to the public and say, hey, you want to have an airport? Here's what it takes to have an airport. But it's a little more complicated to do that in a bunch of these communities that are built on landfill that may or may not have a population that's willing to tax themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they had, and by the way, they had very low voter turnout for this too, just like around the rest of the Bay. Mm-hmm. Foster City is that um, community built entirely on landfill. It was a developer's vision. Um, the Foster family made that whole thing up um, in the mid-60s to the 1970s when it was finally incorporated and started being Foster City. And they taxed themselves, I mean, basically between like, it's an assessed value of the property, but you know, between $270 and $440 for like the average house, something mm-hmm. like that, a year. Um, to raise an earthen levy um, around that community. That's not, I mean, that's a strategy that if you continue to do that is going to look like New Orleans in the long run. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So it's, I I understand, and particularly in California where we have this tradition of local rule, right? Um, We have very strong cities and um, the state has tried to take leadership positions on climate change in the last decade or so. But it's complicated. Everybody's got their power base and there's you have to sort of create new piles of money to, you know, build piles of things to protect you from the ocean. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so... And, and, you know, talk about... And sorry, Brian. No, no, you know, ahead. I mean, again, you come back to something like Norfolk and multiple stakeholders. I mean, you know, aside from the people who are employed there or the Newport News shipbuilding where we literally produce everything that we put out into the water, 
the people who work there, the people who live there, and then, you know, uh, the, the taxes that are involved in, in, in the folks that are living there on the real estate and the federal government. I mean, it, there couldn't be more stakeholders for, for something like that. But, you know, e- even removing just the, the military threat of how do you move the world's biggest naval base? When, yeah, and I also it, it's got to be so hard. I don't. I'm glad you uh, bring that Norfolk perspective. I think about South Louisiana too, and how you have a variety of risk factors for a bunch of people in South Louisiana, and they all have different levels of economic interest and strength sure. um, to bring to this. So there, you know, when they talk about building a leaky levy or building protection for South Louisiana, and some communities are going to get left out, uh, you know. In some ways, this, I, the, there's a phrase they use that's, you might have heard, I don't know whether you've heard this, it's called managed retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about it in New York after Sandy. And in fact, right. New York actually bought out entire streets and entire neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, because they, financially, it doesn't make sense to keep being in some of these places. Well, and that is the big thing. And it, it seems so hard to fathom, but it is true. And I think New Orleans is probably you know, for a variety of reasons, facing that uh, more quickly than most folks, which is, yeah, w- when is it not worth it to to keep occupying these lands? Oh, yeah, but I mean, like in San Francisco, where people spend so much money for, I mean, w- there was like a teardown shack that was on the market for 900000 the other day. Um, <laughs> right. I'm not, uh, that could be any day of the week here. Right. So um, sure. y- y- people aren't going to give up that shoreline in the Bay Area without at the very least, enormous amounts of discussion. Sure, sure. Which is yeah. an action, which is the opposite of what right, you're right. interested in here. Yep, yep. Uh, wow. um, so speaking of, what, what, what is the action going forward? What should citizens be uh, aware of, uh, San Francisco citizens and, and elsewhere? Uh, coming back to how important local news and, and local action is. I continue to be this huge, huge advocate for and supporter of people informing themselves and arming themselves with information locally. Quinn, you obviously are a citizen in multiple places and spend a lot of time, you know, being passionate about the local communities that you're in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a huge deal to inform yourself about if you live in a shoreline or a coastal area, to be familiar with the kind of planning decisions that are made and to ask people what they're doing about it. because. If somebody's putting up a huge um, business complex near you, the decisions that business complex makes might affect your property. Right. Uh, I frequently, when I was going around the Bay, you know, you talk to people. I, I met this guy who I had a lot of empathy with who grew up in South San Francisco. He went to a Catholic high school that was a rival of my Catholic high school. <laughs> he had been in flooding so bad that he couldn't get to school one day. But he had never thought about sea level rise. He had never connected sure. coastal flooding and nuisance flooding to sea level rise. So if you have an expansive understanding of what the impacts are of sea level rise and you think about it like that on a local basis um, and pay attention to local decisions and follow local news, you're going to be a stronger and uh, better advocate for the things you care about. And it is, it, you know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how local newspapers have suffered so much in the past 10 years with uh, all the the Facebook and, and the national, more, more the national players coming online and the national news. Uh, but it is, it, it's not just what is your local paper saying about the national news. There are specific issues that you have to tune yourself into, even in somewhere like New York or San Francisco um, or, or Norfolk or you know, gosh, we vacation sometimes in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And like Miami, again, we've talked a lot today about not just storm flooding, but on a normal day, those streets are already getting flooded. And you have to at some point reckon with the fact that they always say we're 30 to 40 years uh, behind the emissions, right? So if we stopped everything right now, we're, we're still in it for a long time. And these places are going to suffer big time. But if you don't tune in locally, you're not going to be aware of why and what's being done or something that you can do to help, you know, prompt, hopefully, discussion that doesn't just stay discussion, that, that comes to action. Well, and if you're a property owner of any kind, sure. and this goes for not just for sea level rise, but for 
um, flooding that could come from extreme rain. It could mudslides. Um, I, this isn't just a California thing, even though I'm describing yeah. all these California circumstances. Um, your property risk is changing. And um, I think homeowners can be really smart about asking questions of their insurance agencies and getting informed about how the insurance, their insurance agent or their insurance policy sees their risk, because that's going to hit you in the pocketbook. Sure. I mean, we talked a little bit about, and I have to go back and find the specifics of it, but um, how many uh, Americans live within uh, the flooding ranges that sort of newly rectified flooding ranges uh, of America's river systems. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Which are going to get a real bad, too. It's, again, it's not just California and the coasts, um, which are going to get it yeah. the worst, but it, this is this is happening everywhere. And on the other hand, it's also, I haven't read it yet, uh, bouncing around. There's also the problem of running out of water. Uh, if you live in the Southwest, these things are happening and you need to start asking questions of your of your city council and your local representative of going, you know, what what is our plan uh, when the Colorado River can't give us our water anymore? Because we have uh, gotten not complacent, but I, 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 first of all, I don't think most people in general know where their water comes from. But knowing that where it comes from and and how that might be threatened, it's going to be pretty important going forward. And obviously, it's more important in some places than others. And it's not flooding, but these are all the repercussions that again are coming down the pipe. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I. I really appreciate that you guys want to encourage people to take actions uh, and give people a specific concrete action. And my only worry about our conversation is that um, the things that I think people can do are these small things every day, as opposed to um, here's an organization you can become involved with. I don't have a recommendation like that. I have more of a, I believe deeply that when people observe changes in their environment and then mm-hmm. incorporate that into how they think. Um, and I hear that with, with our friends all the time in California, we talk about how to be prepared for disasters in a way we didn't talk about 10 years ago. Sure. And not just because we're older and like, you know, getting to be old farts, but also because <laughs> so the tired. risk is I'm so tired, but also because the risk is changing and we're not wrong to notice it. And um, you can see it in all kinds of different ways. So I just believe in noticing things. No one can pay attention for you. Absolutely. And it's really easy and really understandable why you put your head in the sand, Uh, not be negligent, but but to think, well, this isn't going to affect me in my lifetime or whatever. But it already is. Uh, and it's going to keep coming. And like you said, if you're if you're a property owner of any sort, uh, personally or or a business, yeah, a- a- anything. Like you said, it's worth noticing. It's worth asking the questions on your local level. You don't have to join some big organization. Um, you know, again, we really try to dial it down to you know what people can do with their voice and their vote and their dollar. And and sometimes that's oh, you know, don't buy from these companies that produce as much plastic or. Or whatever it might be, uh, but in this case, it is. It's it's really looking around and going, "Hey, are these uh, beaches, um, these very local beaches uh, that aren't fancy that bring in some of our uh, economic dollars, are they threatened? You know, what's what's well, the situation there?" I think about um, uh, farmers markets. We all didn't. Nobody used to shop at farmers markets. There weren't a lot of farmers markets, and now they're proliferating. Yeah, mm-hmm. and people are in more of a dialogue about where did my um, vegetables come from? Where does my fruit come from? I have a fishmonger, you know, or I know my butcher and I yeah. know where my meat comes from. And you can do that with news in a way too. And I think if you apply that same logic to news, you can actually be, as a local journalist, we want to be in a conversation with people locally to find out what they're seeing and what they're observing. So I had somebody ask me a question about trees in Los Angeles the other day. I'm checking it out for this Pactio um, thing that I'm working on. I, I mean, I'm literally at the point where I'm answering people's individual questions and it helps me be a stronger journalist. So sure. people paying attention makes the journalism better. Let me ask a side question that's a little unrelated, but I do think is important. Let's say you're a young person listening to this, uh, Molly, and uh, you're pretty young. You might still be involved in your community or you might still live in your original community where you grew up or go to college in the area, something like this. Somebody wants to get into local journalism right now. Well, how would you and where would you point them? That's a really good question. I think um, that we're moving into a land where there's a lot of 
project-based, um, largely online outlets uh, and public radio outlets that are contributing to this. And because public radio is doing a better job of paying interns than when I was starting out and seeking diverse applicants and people who have local knowledge, there's a lot more opportunity even at small local stations there, because there have been, and particularly since um, President Trump was elected, there have been more investments even in small communities uh, to put local journalists boots on the ground to represent those communities and and to report for them. So uh, there's a lot of money that's, I mean, I could I can think of a, two or three names of like foundations that have pumped money into local news outlets. So if you are a local person in a community that's got a local news outlet, there may be more opportunities than there used to be already for project-based work, particularly around elections, project-based work around climate change even, and project-based work with a local radio or an online outlet. That is so good to hear. And, and, and I mean, how do you recommend that they take up this, this, this passion turning into a, a, a vocation? Uh, do they just go out there and start asking questions and, and, and reporting back? Do they try to get a job at a proper public radio station or local newspaper or something like that? Um, I'm always a big advocate for people. And I've been doing a lot of work for WWNO <laughs> in New Orleans in recent years. Um, so I, I don't just work for huge public radio stations on the West Coast. I've also worked at a small station in Louisiana where the funding is complex mm -hmm. and different. And what I would say about all the places that I've worked, I worked in local journalism in like four places now. And the continuing factor that I've seen for people who want to break in to any of those outlets and stations is the skills that are going to benefit you as a journalist that you might already natively have mm -hmm. asking questions and being persistent will serve you incredibly well when you're trying to do these things. In other words, yes, I believe that if you show up at a local station and present yourself as somebody who wants to get in the door and you are eager to learn and you're willing to be paid a relatively small amount of money to start, some money mm -hmm. though, <laughs> but a small amount, sure. um, then then you can get into these stations. I've seen it time and time again. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, it is. That's inspiring. We need, we need more of that, more boots on the ground. And there are old people like us who always, I never turn down a conversation with somebody. I know. I always tell people, people you're my were... favorite conversationalist. <laughs> you told me right well, before I, we started I, recording. <laughs> but I, okay, thank you. And <laughs> I also mean that I never took, like if some young journalist approaches me and asks for advice about something or wants to get into a conversation, I've always done it because I had a more complex and not always positive experience when I was coming up and I wanted to do something else differently. So there are journalists like me out there. I love it. Not many though. I mean, you're pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> special. <laughs> Um, Just keep talking. Keep talking. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, we are. Uh, we're we're getting close here, so we'll we'll uh, get to wrapping it up. First of all, just thank you so very much for for talking with us today, Molly, and for building your fort. We really appreciate it. <laughs> and for yeah. it was my pleasure. <laughs> and and is there anything that you feel like we? I mean, I really tried to let you drive, and I hope I didn't try to take us in any wrong directions. Is there anything that I needed to do differently or that you want to do pickups on or anything like that? No. I, by the way, you should answer. If there's anything you think we should do differently. Yeah, right. We uh, should be asking you I, that. All, all I've done is tried to take your advice uh, to, to heed here. Uh, we really appreciate it. So anything specific is always welcome here. No, are you kidding? It's I, I really enjoy the fact that you are trying to have a directed conversation where we achieve something by the end of it. Well, that's the goal. Yeah. I mean, that's that not how of, journalism always works. Well, that was one of the first notes you gave me is, I have no idea why I'm listening to this. What are you guys talking about? And I was like, yeah, that's a fair point. All right. Um, so hopefully we address that. Uh, Molly, always gentle. <laughs> hey, man, I'll take it. I'll take it yeah, every time. No, no time for it. Just be blunt. Awesome. All right, Brian, you want to hit it with the with the pseudo lightning round? Pseudo lightning round, starting with is the yeah the first one, which is not a lightning round question at all. But scary. Uh, <laughs> but yes, Molly, we have a couple lightning round questions for you. If that sounds good. Uh, yes, I'm scared, but ready. <laughs> no, it's it's not about you. It's about me. I gotta I gotta fix this, Molly. When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? You know, I walked my first precinct for a local candidate when I was seven years old. Wow. Um, 
And it was because, and I've just been talking to my sister about this quite a bit, uh, because she's now got a six-month-old. I remember where I was the night Reagan got elected. And my mom let us stay up late and watch election results. And she said, you know, this isn't going to be good, but we have to pay attention. And that's so good. And so that was the kind of childhood I had. And the person that I walked a precinct for when I was very young was Anna Eshoo, who has now been a congresswoman for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's so, pretty awesome. Uh, if you had gone on to pretty much any other career track, I would have been surprised after that. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. You know what? I have an I have a colleague uh, named Frank Stoltz who covers criminal justice and specifically the police and sheriff's departments in Los Angeles, and he's always trying to argue me into making my work more urgent and making clear to people how urgent it is that climate change is a big deal. So it's really helpful to talk to people who are skeptical of the mission of say important, not important, and mm-hmm. the mission of being a climate reporter mm-hmm. because. I would say Frank Stoltz. And the other, frankly, I interviewed a guy named T. Jack Foster Jr., who's 89 years old mm-hmm. and founded Foster City and does not believe in the mainstream accepted science of climate change. He believes that climate um, is cyclical. And mm-hmm. without getting too much into that, uh, he the conversation I had with him was fantastic for having to explain to myself why I believe what I believe. So, sure. Um, it's really helpful to talk to people who disagree with you to test your assumptions. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Brian, okay, actual lightning round. Actual lightning round. <laughs> Molly, how do you consume the news? Uh, on my phone, mostly. Yeah, we get that are a lot. You, are, are you rocking any specific Apple apps. News or, or specific apps? Or are you just doing Twitter or combination of them? Or do you just read your own stuff? <laughs> I just read my own news <laughs> and think, wasn't that great what I made? Yeah. I, uh, there's a number of things. I actually have a lot of Twitter lists um, that I use for, I f- don't find Twitter great for interacting with normal people, <laughs> but I find Twitter great for interacting with news outlets and pieces of information from ongoing events. So I've got some climate science lists and Southern California journalism lists that I use. Um, I don't have a lot of special apps. I also do visit homepages to see what news, or- I'm like such an old person to see what news organizations do. And I will say I'm very interested in and cover a lot of environmental justice issues. So I religiously follow the NPR podcast Code Switch, Code um, Switch. because uh, Code Switch is the um, uh, race and ethnicity podcast from NPR that's mm-hmm. um, co-hosted by Gene Demby and Shereen so Maraji. Good. And I just really love that podcast. Yeah, they're doing important work, for sure. Yeah. Something I want to dig into to more, uh, uh, of course. Molly, if if you could Amazon Prime one book to President Trump, what would it be? I mean, I don't know if I would, because it might just make him angry and he wouldn't read it. <laughs> pretend, it's pretend. a decent response. It's a decent response. We've had we've we've we basically everybody else has recommended something along along a wide spectrum from children's books uh, to ethical things to sciencey stuff. And we've definitely we've had definitely had one other guest who was just like not interested. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, if I it, honestly, I, a slightly better answer is, and I can't remember the name of who created it, but you guys might have seen it. There was a. Um, a graphical um a graphical novel like a short graphical story about why conflicts in syria were influenced by water shortages and climate change you know and it is a picture version that. of that and it is not very long like i want to say it's like five pages long less and i believe that um that's a way that president trump could take in that information so just to give him a sense that the world is a small place with a lot of problems that we share mm-hmm. and that climate change influences things that he might not think it influences, I would give him that story. Feels like there's a whole market for these things, like five-page comic books that yeah, explain right. a complicated situation in pictures for him. Uh, if I had something in me more than stick figures, I would have done it. <laughs> I think I've found it, so it we'll done. share it. Yeah. Well, well done, Brian. Molly, this has been so great. 
Thank you so much. Uh, where can uh, our our human army of listeners follow you online and all your work? You know, the best place going forward is going to be um, this Pactio. It's spelled P-A-C-T-I-O dot U-S, mm-hmm. um, where I'm going to post all the updates of all the local work I'm doing and answer listener questions um, going forward. So, and I'm there first journalist they're there i'm basically the experiment right now so wow. um b- between that and mollypeterson.org uh you can find anything worthwhile that i've done in the last five years beautiful awesome awesome yeah um well listen lady thank you so much uh for your time today and of course for all that you do fighting for local journalism and and to help encourage people to stay more informed on the local level whether it's climate change or environmental justice or anything else for that matter uh it's important your community matters and and you are uh, you are uh, an important piece of that machine so we thank you very much thanks for the conversation i feel better about my job it was a blast thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in we hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news, most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at importantnotimportant. Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.